So we're working together through the book of Titus, and uh, I want to uh, read for us the section that we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Titus chapter 2, and we want to look at one paragraph, verses 11 through 15. It'll be up on the screen so you can follow along as I read. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, Paul writes, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. Will you pray with me briefly as we acknowledge again God's presence in our midst? Father, thanks this morning for all that flows to us through Jesus. Thank you for life and for wholeness, for joy and hope that is found in him. Thank you that he comes and he changes everything. We would ask now that as we reflect together on uh, your word, Holy Spirit, that you would come and uh, be our teacher today. Take your word and work it into our souls. Jesus, we pray in your great name. Amen. So again, we're looking at the short little letter that Paul has written to a man by the name of Titus who was left behind on the Isle of Crete to set some things in order and to appoint some leaders, some new leaders there in the church, and also to remind the people there, particularly these new believers, of the kind of life to which they were called in Christ. And undergirding this entire letter is this reality, in fact, of what Jesus, or what God is doing in the person of Jesus. So, you know, the big picture of Scripture, the, the large story, the meta narrative, so to speak. In the beginning, God makes everything, He makes the heavens and the earth, and He makes man, humanity, and places man there in the garden in this beautiful setting, this Uh, paradise, if you will. And how then man, Adam and Eve together, turned their backs on God. They abandoned him, and then sin enters the world, and everything gets broken. Man himself gets broken. Relationship between men and women gets broken. Relationship between man and God gets broken. And the created order itself gets infused with this reality of sin. But God, in his love and mercy, then begins to set in motion a plan for him to redeem everything, right? To put into order that which has been put out of order. And that includes, of course, bringing redemption to humanity, but also God's 
desire is to, in the end, reshape everything, including a new heaven and a new earth. And in that process, God sends his son, his only son, to take on the form of humanity, to become a man. And not only to reveal for us what God is like, but also in his own life to go to the cross and to die for the sins of humanity. And then in his resurrection, he becomes that first fruit, that that new reality of what God is doing to recreate everything. You know, in the resurrection, it's not just Jesus was dead and then he came to life, but God resurrected him. He arose from the grave in new power and new life. And what God has done in Jesus as we then step into his reality, to step into the kingdom, his resurrection life begins to unfold in in us and in the anticipation of what will happen one day when Jesus, when Jesus returns bodily, physically, and then everything will be remade, heaven and earth together. And Paul, in this letter, this, this reality is undergirding everything that he is saying, and he is describing for Titus this new reality and what it looks like if you will, to live in that resurrection life, that resurrection power of Jesus. And so part of what that new reality looks like is seen in the kind of leaders now that Titus is to appoint there in this early church on this island of Crete. The kind of leadership that doesn't look like anything like how leadership typically unfolds in the world. And so he describes things like um, this, this person must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunken or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. disciplined. The kind of dis- description of what a new leader in Christ looks like is radically different than what you will find in the world. And so in chapter 2, then he turns to what a household looks like. That, too, has been, been radically altered. And he describes how older men and older women are to relate to one another and how they relate to younger men and women and how younger men and women are to respond. And he even talks about how those who serve in that household, that those who step into this new life through Christ, their behavior and their character is radically changed too. And then we'll find out as Pastor Jeff returns to walk us through chapter 3, how then we, that new humanity, so to speak, that is found in Christ, begins to live and operate in a different way in society too. The life of Jesus comes and it transforms everything. Well, one of the questions that unfold is, well, how then do we step into this new reality and learn to walk in it? And in this paragraph here, right in the end of chapter 2, right in the middle of the book, Paul describes for us that this new reality unfolds in the setting of grace. 
The grace of God that is expressed particularly in the person of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, and now it has an impact on us as we follow in him. See, part of the process of stepping into this new reality, this new kingdom life that Jesus came to announce, is by grabbing firmly hold of just what grace is. Grace is one of those Christian words that we become so familiar with that sometimes we can forget what it really is and how it operates. If you read through Scripture, you'll find it mentioned. In the New Testament, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of passages that speak about just what grace is. And so I want to, I, I chose five, right? It's kind of seven, uh, semi-randomly even. I found five passages that speak about grace. And I just want you to listen to how Scripture speaks. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, this righteousness or this rightness, right? This now right life is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, he writes. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by what? By his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, In him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Chapter 2 of the same letter, he says this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He says in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, For the law was given through Moses. Right? The Ten Commandments and all the legal precepts and commandments and statutes and commands that were given at Mount Sinai to the Jewish nation. And uh, all 613, if you go count them, in the, the first five books of the Bible. And there you have the story. It says God is, or Moses even is on the mountain with God. The people are all down at the bottom. And they're having a huge party, but not a good kind of party, a bad kind of party. And as Moses is coming down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, freshly inked, right, with the finger of God, he comes upon what the people are doing, and you remember what he does. He takes the stone tablets and he throws them on the ground and he breaks them. Well, it's not just because Moses had an anger issue problem. In breaking the tablets like that, he is demonstrating that here already, before I even get the laws to the people, the people have already broken them. The covenant that God is wanting to make with the people is already broken. Well, that law, which the people could never fulfill, 
came by Moses. But John goes on to write, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Romans 5 these words, for if by the trespass of one man, that being Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more were those who received God's abundant provision of what? Of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. In Scripture, we could pull up dozens more that speak about the grace of God manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, what is grace then? Just what is this word that God so freely gives to us, whereby salvation comes? Well, the old Sunday school definition, I remember as a kid, right? Um, Grace was that thing that we get that we don't deserve. And it was often defined with mercy, right? Mercy is when we don't get something we do deserve, Right, you know, so when you have a little kid and being threatened to be sent up to the room and, no, please, please, please have mercy upon me. Although I don't think any little kid that would ever say that word, but the idea is don't give me what I deserve, and that's mercy. Grace, on the other hand, is us getting what we don't deserve. Now, Old Sunday school definitions like that are useful and helpful, but the reality is they don't tell the whole story. So just what is grace? Grace is the way that God in his love chooses to deal with you and me. You see, God deals with his people not on the basis of merit or worthiness, what they deserve, but simply according to their need. In other words, he deals with us on the basis of who he is, on the basis of his goodness and generosity and love. Love. That is grace revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And his heart of love and compassion that is freely extended to us. And how important it, uh, it is for us to grab a hold of that reality. This week I was uh, looking through, uh, clicking on uh, YouTube, and how it is often the case, you know, on that first page there are all these videos that they recommend for you. And I don't know why, but there was this video of this lady's testimony, and I clicked on it, and uh, there was something about it that grabbed me, that spoke about this whole issue of grace. Now, uh, the video is actually about a 10-minute long segment, so we pared it down to about two and a half minutes. It actually uh, tells of a near-death experience that he that she had. And I'm a little hesitant of showing you that because I don't want you to get caught up on the near-death experience part of it, right? Um, this happened in March of, the, of year 2000, and she was in her vehicle in, uh, in the area around Flagstaff, Arizona, and was involved in a massive pileup on the, on the highway. And in that, a semi-tractor-trailer uh, basically ran over her vehicle. 
She was uh, trapped in the vehicle for about two and a half hours or so. They were trying to cut her out. Uh, by this point, she's unconscious. They get her in an ambulance and rush her to the hospital where she is basically declared brain dead. There's no, nothing going on within her. Uh, they put her on life support system basically to harvest her organs, right? Uh, and in this process, her family gets a call, her sister gets a call, and both of them, of course, believers, and begin to pray. And uh, it's in the midst of this that she has this experience that uh, I want us to listen to today. So take a look as we see it. When I stepped into heaven, I mean, I, I hit the light and I was literally blinded by the light. I'm blinded still today of the light of his presence. I stood up, I turned around and there was Jesus. And I don't know if I've I ran to him or he came to me. I mean, all of a sudden we were there. He just smiled at me and I felt all this emotion that he had for me. I finally felt like I I was home. It was like I stepped into, finally I belonged. This is where I belonged. I was home. Valerie had been a Christian for most of her life, but says she never believed that God really loved her. In my heart of hearts, I did not believe that I was worthy of his love. Because I always felt like I was never going to measure up to what I thought the Lord wanted from me. So when I felt his emotion, I felt how he felt about me. And the things that I, I thought about myself, like my flaws or my, my issues, he never even noticed. He just wants me. It wasn't anything that I, I did for him. It wasn't my performance, nothing. It was, it was just me. I wasn't just loved by him, but he was in love with me. And I was his, that was it. I was done for. (laughs) And I I thought, "Ah." but then realizing, this is how he feels about his creation. Those that he's created, whether they know him yet or not. This is how he feels. Valerie says she felt like she was there for a thousand years and experienced life and love like she never had on earth. Then, Jesus told her she had to go back with a message. He said, you can stay if you want to. And I said, well, if I can stay, I'm staying with you. I'm going to stay with you. And he said, but your purpose isn't done. And he said, I want you to tell them, tell the people who I am, who I really am. Because I thought he was, you know, religious. I thought he was mean. I thought he was, um, I didn't think he was, you know, human. And he, he's human. He'll always be human, but he's God. I didn't want to leave him. I hated leaving, but I had to come back. So the story goes on that uh, she awakens there in the hospital bed. The doctors are amazed that one, that brain activity has come back. And about 10 weeks later after this, she walks out of the hospital totally free. Sign of God's love and grace. Now, this is a testimony, right? And uh, you've got to take it as it is. And uh, 
not draw too much theology from the experience that she shares, but at the same time, right, do you catch your heart? And this encounter with the living Lord, who she thought, even though she was a believer, yes, he was God and he saved me, but, you know, he was a bit religious and maybe a little angry and kind of watching over my back all the time about how I behaved. When she encountered the real Lord as he is, as he is described in Scripture, there is this picture of love and grace. You know, we have such a poor view of God and a poor view of his love and a poor view of his grace so freely poured out upon you and me. Even in the Old Testament, as Moses goes back up to the mountain, right, to get another set of stones, like copy number two, there is these words that come out in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That is the Lord. That is the Lord that we serve. And that is the Lord who seeks to reveal himself to you and me. So I just have to pause this morning. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know his love and his grace that he so freely longs for us to receive? Listen, you don't need some near-death experience to encounter the living, living, risen, loving Lord. Jesus is alive today. He is, and he comes to us by his Spirit. And he's looking for those who will freely respond to his love and grace and kindness. To surrender our own self-centeredness and to ask for and to receive not only forgiveness of sin, right, all our junk that causes our life to be fractured, but also to receive his love and the new life, the new kind of life that by his spirit he wants to impart within us, to change us, and to transform us. If you don't know him and don't know that kind of life, you can. And we gain it not by working, we gain it not by slaving away to somehow appease an angry God, but we come by simply humbling, bowing before him, and receiving from him forgiveness and love and grace. And when we enter into that reality and give to him our life itself. Oh, he comes in and he changes everything he does. And this is grace. We sang about it this morning. This is love. This is grace. And grace, to be sure, is far more than the forgiveness of sins. Grace is the ocean in which we learn how to swim again. Grace is the environment in which we learn how to grow in him and how to become a different kind of people that respond not as the world does, 
It was one of the, the amazing things about Jesus, that he responded so differently than the world that was around him. When he stood before Pontius Pilate, and there all the people gathered around him, hurling accusations against him. Scripture says that he kept his mouth shut, and Pilate was amazed. How could this man respond so? Because he was a different kind of man. He was the son of the living God. Come in human flesh. Not only to come and save us, but to show us that there is another way to live and to, by His Spirit, give us His very life, His resurrected life unfolding in us to change us and to transform us. And God wants that too, right? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, uh, Titus writes, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait for that same Lord to come and return a second, the second time to set everything right. Peter writes this way in his second letter, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So this grace that comes to receive us as we are with all our junk and with all our mess also is the setting and ocean in which we grow in him. See, it's not like we're saved by grace and then we have to to work hard and sweat under the fear of judgment of the same living God, but that same grace also floods and fills this process of growing in the grace and knowledge of Him. You see, grace doesn't mean that God forgives us and then we're free to live any old way that we want, right? To live like we used to live before we know Him, to lead like the world leads, or to run a household like the world runs a household, or to live in society as society lives. Now, God's grace comes in salvation, not only to save us and to rescue us and to make us whole, but also by His Spirit to work in us so that more and more and more and more we, be, we become like the same Lord who came to redeem us. You see, grace not only saves us, but it teaches us. It trains us. If you will, it disciplines us. Perhaps not in a way, however, that we think typically of discipline. You know, oftentimes we think of discipline as a punishment, right? Uh, One of our kids gets in trouble doing something they shouldn't be doing, so we give them a time, time out or we send them up to their room as a punishment. And we view discipline as a punishment, something bad that hinders my freedom. But the kind of love and grace and salvation that is expressed in Jesus as a discipline is not to restrict us or to punish us, but to train us, to help us to step into more and more and more and more the kind of very life that God longs for us to experience. You see, grace 
is absolutely opposed to earning. There is nothing in grace that is connected with earning at all. But grace is not opposed to effort. You see, earning is an attitude. Right? If I do these things, then God will like me, and he'll be nice to me, and he'll bless me. No, no, no. Earning is an attitude, and when we walk in that way, we tend to slip back into, I'm going to follow God on the basis of law, on the basis of behavior. Grace is opposed to earning, to be sure, but not to effort. See, effort is merely action, and God in his grace, by his grace, wants to so be involved in our life by his Spirit that our life is transformed by him and changed by him. And that's the way that this life with Jesus becomes a yoke that is easy rather than a yoke that is hard. You see, the Christian life is not all about trying harder. You know, gritting my teeth to try harder to behave in ways that will please God and make me happy with me rather than angry with me. It's not if at first you don't succeed, try, try, and try harder again. No. If it's, it's rather if at first you don't succeed, figure out what went wrong and come back to God into His grace-filled love And learn what went wrong and figure it out with him by your side and then in his strength try again as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And it's all done in that that grace and love and power and strength that flows so freely from him. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies and bless those who are who curse you. Well, if you try to do that in your own strength and power, let me tell you, it will be an utter failure. But when we do it in the ocean of grace, freely given, freely accepted, abounding in love, God's Spirit comes and He trains us through that grace, helps us to know what it is and why it's good to love your enemy and how it works. And God, by His Spirit, begins to transform our heart and we partner with Him in that process. And then we become the kind of people that is described here in this letter. People who are steadfast in faith and love. People who respond in a way that they are ready for every good work, speaking evil of no one, avoiding quarreling, gentle, showing perfect courtesy toward all people. That is the kind of life that God, by His grace and through His love and by the transforming work of His Spirit, longs to see more and more and more and more unfolding in our life. And as we walk in the grace that God brings in salvation, it teaches us how to live in that grace so then that we then can begin to extend that same kind of grace to one another, to those that are around us. 
You know, the world is desperate. The world is absolutely desperate for signs of love and grace. It really is. And we who know the Lord, who have received that grace, now have the joy and freedom to begin to spread that grace, to share that grace with those that are around us. And rather than being terribly hard on one another, which we tend to do, don't we? We can be very hard on one another, demanding that everyone live up to our standards. Jesus calls to us and says, as you receive from me that same kind of grace and love that I offer to you now, I invite you in my strength and power to share and spread that grace and love with those who are so desperate to to hear it and to receive it. All the while waiting, all the while waiting for Christ to come and set everything right. Paul says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. So let me say to you this morning, do you know, do you really know the love and grace that comes from the living God. He loves, and he loves freely. He loves with an ocean of grace that receives us as we are, with all our brokenness, with all our stuff, and he invites us to come. If you don't know him this morning, let me invite you. Oh, don't turn away from the Lord. Will you embrace him and all that he longs to bring to your life? If you know him this morning, remember his grace and love. It's so easy for us to forget. Even as we sang this morning that his love and grace might wash over us today. So, Father in heaven, that is our prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the love and grace so freely given to us through the person of Christ Jesus. Father, who are we that you would respond so to us? Lord, is the reflection of who you are. You are love itself. Lord, help us to see you clearly today. Jesus, thank you for the life that you came to lead. lead. Not only did you come to provide a way for us to be made free from our sin, from all our stuff, but Jesus, you came to bring life itself. Lord, forgive us when we view you, too, as a hard taskmaster. Lord, you don't seek to push us and bully us. You seek to woo us and to call us by your grace. To walk deeper in and farther up in your great love. Holy Spirit, come and speak to us afresh today about just who you are and the grace, the grace that you bring to us in the person of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen.